Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The Crisis Next Door, a weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world with host Jason Brooks. Welcome to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. We took a two-week holiday hiatus, but we're back keeping track of conflicts around the world. And what better way to start 2019 than to look at the major story arcs for the year ahead. We're joined in our endeavor by previous show contributor Alex Clement, senior editor of Signal and creative director of G Zero Media with the Eurasia Group. Alex, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Thanks for having me back at the top of the year. Lots to worry about. (laughs) There always is a lot to worry about. And, of course, Eurasia Group puts out its annual top 10 risks of the year ahead. And you've got a list to look at and for us to consider for 2019. Why don't we take a quick look at what those top risks are? Well, I think one place to begin, just to kind of frame how we're thinking about 2019, is that in 2017, 2018, we really sort of started this process of getting getting used to what looked like a fundamentally new world order, right? Uh, you know, Trump appears not to have been a fluke. Brexit, not a fluke. In country after country, you are seeing the rise of real challenges to the assumptions of how the world works over the past 20 years, globalized capital, multilateral institutions, um, uh, 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 liberal values, and all these things that really were the mainstays of what we thought of as a more or less U.S.-led world order. All of that is now demonstrably coming undone. And I think what's interesting is to think about how how quickly does that happen and how slow and and what are the what are the effects 2019 is not a year in which the wheels are going to totally come off the bus but it is a, a year in which all of these um these kind of deeper structural issues whether that's the fraying of us alliances deeper conflict between the U.S. and China. Forget trade. The U.S. and China can work out trade. What they can't work out is a fundamental rivalry over questions of dominating new technologies in the 21st century. Who will assume a rightful role as a world leader or even as a regional leader in Asia? Those are issues that are not going to be solved by trade. That is a fundamental issue, U.S.-China. You look at the rise of populism, not only in Europe, which we've, we've looked at a lot, but also increasingly in Latin America. You look at the elections in India and Indonesia. The way that Populist nationalist ideas are not a flash in the pan. They are a fundamental feature of how the world works today. All of these things are really settling in as real problems. None of them is going to explode in 2019, but also none of them is going to be fixed in 2019. So 2019 is the year in which we really are going to understand how deep these problems run and whether people are really capable of coming up with creative solutions to those problems or if we are really kind of going down the... um, the toboggan here into a fundamentally uh, and potentially destabilizingly new uh, world order. Uh, so that's kind of how we think about the top of it. And what we've called that is the problem of bad seeds, right? 
the bad seeds problem, which is no one really has an answer for how U.S. retrenchment is going to affect the world. No one really has an answer for the forces that are driving populism, in, uh, particularly in Europe, but also in other regions. No one has an answer to how U.S.-China is going to play out. And while those things are unanswered, these bad seeds put down deeper roots that make the world fundamentally more vulnerable to crises, whether they are security crisis, a cyber attack crisis, an economic crisis, than we have been at any point in the past 20 years. Well, let's start off with the number one risk for 2019, the so-called bad seeds and these these seeds that are being planted now that may not cause the immediate problem this year, but down the road are going to be a bigger problem. Let's start with U.S. political institutions. Obviously, President Donald Trump has, has taken a, a very different approach to talking about uh, U.S. intelligence agencies, uh, whether it be the Justice Department, the FBI. He takes a very different look at these institutions than presidents have in the past. What do you think this means for the U.S. going forward and, and, and as a result, the rest of the world? Well, I think 2019 is the year in which we find out whether, uh, at, uh, at its core, the Trump presidency is different merely as a matter of, of different norms and different stylistic ways of, of conducting the presidency, or whether there is really a fundamental challenge to U.S. institutions uh, that comes from, from Trump uh, personally uh, as the president. And I say that because this is a year in which, of course, Democrats now control the House. They will have much greater power to, uh, to launch investigations and subpoenas. And, you know, as we've seen, they're not going to be shy about doing so. Um, so up until now, Trump hasn't really faced a whole lot of opposition. Uh, he's, you know, he's gotten into it with the courts, been beaten back on a couple things, had a couple of wins. Uh, he's really mainly been fighting with the media and with kind of, uh, with kind of liberal boogeymen who are easily, easily triggered and excited by everything that he does. But he hasn't really um, kind of gotten into locked horns with any of the real kind of core institutions of the United States government system. This year we are going to see if and when that happens. Uh, as the investigations come down, not only the Mueller investigation, but whatever the House decides to look into, we will see uh, if Trump decides to force, um, you know, use his powers to try to stop those investigations, reshape those investigations in ways that could very well provoke a constitutional crisis. We haven't had that till now. 2019 is when we're going to find out whether it goes down. And we've seen, obviously, in the past incidents regarding Presidents Nixon or Clinton, where at least the stock markets hung in there despite uh, potential impeachment. Uh, do you think that that might be the case this year? The markets are already volatile. Might they react in a much different way if articles of impeachment move forward against President Trump? Well, th this is more your bailiwick than mine, I, <laughs> I would say. I, I think what's interesting when you, when you look at the markets is, yes, there was that tremendous volatility towards the end of the year. But by and large, the economic picture is not bad in most of the world. You have some slowdown in China, yes, of course, but still off of pretty high rates of growth. You, 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 you had this volatility towards the end of the year, but we're still not uh, you know, in, in, in any, anywhere near an economic crisis or, or a market meltdown. And that Dissonance between how bad, structurally speaking, fundamentally speaking, if you will, the geopolitics are and how relatively resilient the markets and, and economies are, that kind of delta, if you will, that, that dissonance is a big problem. Because if, once, you, once you do have a real kind of economic problem or a market meltdown of some kind, that's going to exacerbate the geopolitical problems in ways that can very fast become unpredictable and potentially destabilizing. 
Europe is becoming more unpredictable. That's another one of the bad seeds mentioned in the top 10 risks. Of course, you've got the Brexit situation that continues to unfold. We don't know where that's going to go. And there's also a rise in European populism that we've seen across the continent. Uh, What's Europe's future? It it seems as though the European experiment, the European Union that we saw over the past two decades has really weakened considerably. And it may not have the future that people once thought it would. Well, that's right. I mean, I think, look, the the European Union and the euro in particular has neither been as successful as its proponents imagined, nor as disastrous as its critics uh, uh, predicted, right? Uh, The the euro has muddled through, through various crises. Uh, There's still lots of work to do to make it work better. Uh, But but as as I said, it's muddled through. I think the big problem in Europe is the politics. And the big event that we're looking at this year is the uh, European parliamentary elections, parliamentary elections at the EU level, which will take place in May. Uh, And these are elections in which the populist parties that have been uh, doing much, much better across the continent, both in Northern and in Southern Europe, uh, are set to make huge gains. The significance of that is that that will give these parties, many of which have uh, some kind of Eurosceptic coloring to them, certainly uh, beefs with the current po- uh, EU policy on immigration and uh, trade and, um, and, uh, and even on, on questions of democracy uh, and liberal democracy, uh, the, the, the populist parties will have a seat at the table inside of the cockpit of the EU in order to reshape European norms on those issues, on migration policy, on trade policy, and on policing uh, countries potentially, you know, like Hungary or like Poland, who have really started to go in a direction that is fundamentally at odds with the EU's basic prescriptions of liberal democracy. So uh, I think the big question is, once populists are kind of inside of the machine at the EU level, can they really reshape it and potentially weaken it. That's what we're looking at. Germany has always been a linchpin of European politics. How critical is the absence of Angela Merkel going forward? Well, I mean, she is, you know, the, uh, I'm not quite sure how you say lame duck in German. I'm sure it's a delightfully long word. Uh, but, but whatever it is, she is that now. And that's a big problem because you, cause Europe has really been driven. The, the European integration project, um, both uh, politically and economically and in terms of values, Germany was at the core of that, right, along with France, right? Um, and both of those countries, Germany and France, the two powerhouses of the EU, and of course we're leaving the UK out because they're about to be out. Uh, both of those countries uh, are struggling with very weak uh, leadership at the moment. Angela Merkel is a lame duck. She will be replaced. Uh, when We're not sure when she'll call elections, but she's already announced that she won't be seeking re-election. Uh, so she's essentially a lame duck. And of course, in France, President Emmanuel Macron uh, is uh, terribly weak. His approval ratings are in the 20s. He's been struggling with extremely uh, violent protests uh, against his government now for eight weeks in a row. He's backed off on key reforms that he promised to make within France. And his weakness within France makes it harder for him to make a case, as he has done, that Europe itself needs to be reformed and brought more together and more integrated as a response to populism. So the two tent poles of Europe, France and Germany, are both extremely weak domestically in their own domestic part, the two leaders, uh, weak domestically, which makes it much harder for those two countries to come together to uh, to rework the, the European uh, project. Meanwhile, the populists are storming the gates and are about to get elected to positions of power within Brussels. Populism, nationalism is another big risk, one of the bad seed risks that are mentioned by Eurasia Group. How critical are those yellow vest protests in France? How influential will they be on Europeans in other countries and what they decide to do to move forward on initiatives they want to see from their governments? 
Well, look, I mean, the, the, um, what's remarkable, remarkable about the, uh, the Yellow Vest protest is that, you know, Emmanuel Macron was elected uh, president two years ago. Uh, he, he created a political party out of nothing. He fashioned himself as an, an outsider. He had a background in finance and was certainly not an outsider in the elite. I mean, he was a French elite, but as a political outsider. And now he's confronted with a much more kind of violent and, um, and angry, widespread uh, kind of opposition coming from the streets, coming from the middle class, particularly the rural middle class, um, that feels that his reforms uh, are actually uh, hurting them rather than helping them, that he's merely helping the, uh, the, the moneyed elites more than he's helping the people he promised to help. Um, and I think that's quite an interesting lesson. Uh, that others uh, in Europe will, will, will see. Uh, so, you know, whether they spread to other countries, uh, tough to say. I can tell you that in Egypt, actually, they have banned the sale of yellow construct reflective construction vests because in Egypt they are worried about yellow vest protests taking to the streets of the Cairo. So make of that what you will. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about the top risks facing the world in 2019. And we're joined by Alex Clement, Senior Editor of Signal and Creative Director of G0 Media with the Eurasia Group. The second top risk on the list from Eurasia Group is U.S.-China relations. The trade war obviously top of mind with many people out there. You mentioned earlier that a trade deal will eventually be reached, but there's much more to this than simply reaching a new trade deal between China and the U.S. Has this relationship been compromised in a bigger way going forward? Well, I, I think, uh, yeah, look, one aspect of this is trade and tariffs. And, and that's the kind of leading edge of, uh, of President Trump's uh, kind of bid to, uh, to really kind of push back against uh, China's uh, rise uh, more, uh, more, more broadly. Uh, the, the concern is not uh, really about trade. I mean, when we think about what the big problems are between the U.S. and China, trade is a diversion. The big issue is uh, concerns technology, it concerns uh, market access for firms from both countries, um, and it concerns this bigger question of what does the world look like as China assumes what China believes is its rightful role as a global power, right? When you look at how each side talks about this issue, the U.S., more often than not, is framing this increasingly as an existential struggle with a challenging rising world power, right? The Chinese frame it as an attempt by the West to, yet again, keep a good China down. And that, that kind of philosophical, kind of existential issue colors how both sides see this, and it makes this conflict about much more than whether there's a tariff on your television or your soybeans or not, right? This is about how do these two countries interact with each other as two Goliaths in the world over the next decades. Um, there's also the issue of technology, right? One of the things that the Trump administration, uh, not without reason, wants to push back on is the, is the Chinese practice of giving huge state help to its own technology companies that are developing uh, new advanced technologies, whether it's AI, machine learning, advanced manufacturing, giving huge advantages and support to its own companies while making it really hard for foreign companies to come into China without giving up their own intellectual property, right? Now, from the U.S. perspective and from the perspective of many other countries, this is grossly unfair. On this, Trump has it right. Uh, the problem is that what he's asking China to do when he's saying we want you to change that is he's basically asking the Chinese to change an economic and political model that has not only worked 
well for them over the past several decades. It's worked phenomenally well for them over the past several decades. It's taken them from being a poor agrarian country to the second largest economy in the world. Right? So when, when we hear about this conflict over the economic model, the, invest, the industrial policies, the technology, all of this is bound up with who, who China thinks it is. And China is not going to allow the U.S. to say, we want you to change your entire, your entire political economic model because we don't like it. Because from China's perspective, this model has worked and they're willing to defend it. So that's why I think that, that, that this issue of trade and whether they can agree on tariffs on this and tariffs on that is really a diversion because these bigger issues of who leads the world together and how, who controls technology of the future, whose companies get support and whose don't, all of that stuff is still on the table and it's existential. There's no clear resolution to those problems. China continues to build out its presence in the South China Sea. It's pushing for unification with Taiwan. These are issues that have been going on for years. Are we getting pressed closer to a potential military conflict with China over these issues? I, I think we are, not in the sense of either side really gearing up for, uh, for, a, con for a sort of planning a, a big move in either of those places, but more uh, about the issue of a miscalculation or a kind of unforeseen mishap or mistake uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the South China Sea or in the Strait of Taiwan. Now, that's the kind of risk where you have two large two large and powerful countries that are disagreeing on an increasingly broad range of issues both led by presidents with increasingly sort of nationalistic uh, ways of being that you know one errant warship in the South China Sea or off the coast of Taiwan can lead to a cycle of escalation that's unpredictable so from to my to my mind, it's not so much, are we going to see a war in Taiwan or South China Sea? I'd be more worried about a mistake that leads to an escalation that quickly uh, gets out of control. Bullets and bombs may not be likely, but there could be a greater chance of a cyber conflict between the U.S. and China. And that brings us to one of the other top risks of 2019, according to Eurasia Group, cyber gloves coming off. In particular from the U.S., we've seen a number of major hacks on U.S. corporations, government institutions that have come from overseas, and now apparently the U.S. wants to get more aggressive. How critical is this to this particular story arc? Yeah, look, I mean, the, the U.S. Uh, is looking to uh, go on offense with its cyber weapons uh, in order to deter potential attackers, right? We have to remember, there's no rules of the game for cyber warfare right now. There's no Geneva Convention. There's no rules of how war is waged, who's accountable for what, what proportional responses are. Um, and in the absence of any kind of structure for cyber conflict, which I think, as, as your question gets to, really is one of the big, big risks, not just for this year, but for the next coming years, of course, the U.S. is looking to go more on offense with its own cyber weapons as a show of force meant to deter other countries. Uh, the problem is that the main cyber rivals of the U.S., of course, Russia, uh, Iran, North Korea, and you, you rightly mentioned China, are unlikely to be deterred. Uh, they're not going to take this lying down. So what you can see, the risk here is that the U.S., kind of does a cyber show of force that in fact opens a kind of Pandora's box or a vicious cycle in which other cyber powers, both at the state level, but also non-state actors who are very difficult to deter, uh, uh, start to shoot back and, and, and do things in cyberspace that can, that can, that can sort of snowball uh, and become a much, uh, a much messier situation. And that gets us into Russia. And of course, Russia has been engaged with Ukraine in eastern Ukraine in a, a long war of about five years now in the Donbass with uh, 
uh, Russian separatists in that part of Ukraine fighting uh, Ukrainian soldiers. You've had the Crimea Peninsula taken back by Russia in recent years. And just recently in the Sea of Azov, a confrontation between Ukrainian and Russian naval vessels. This war has been going on for a while in Ukraine, doesn't seem to move much in either direction. But is that something that could change after seeing the, the confrontation of the vessels in the Sea of Azov? Well, I think one the thing to look at this year is that Ukraine is going to hold presidential elections in several months' time and then parliamentary elections uh, thereafter. Uh, Russia uh, will want to uh, have a big influence on how that election turns out. You can be sure of that. Uh, there's no one outside of Ukraine who cares more about Ukraine than Russian President Vladimir Putin. Uh, so I think the, the, the risk uh, is that, look, Getting into it with each other, Moscow and Kiev, kind of tensions between those two capitals, serves a real political interest domestically for President Putin and, of course, in Ukraine for President Poroshenko, right? Uh, the problem is that the conflict in the East... This has been simmering, as you say, uh, at various levels of intensity for uh, almost five years now. Uh, it is unresolved. It is the type of thing that can quickly spiral out of control. So I think the, the kind of perfect storm is a situation in which uh, the elections, uh, there's a question about the integrity of the elections, uh, you get uh, a kind of nationalist, uh, anti-Russian accusations from the Ukrainian government, uh, Russia responds in kind, um, you start to see provocations along the line of contact, and then again, as you know, as earlier with, this, with what can happen in the South China Sea, you can get an escalation that goes well beyond what either side intends, but which both sides are seen politically to profit from at home. Uh, so I think that's the thing to watch in Ukraine this year. Syria doesn't make Eurasia Group's top 10 list of risks for 2019, but the civil war drags on. Do you see any improvement in Syria's hopes this coming year, or is it just another year of bloodshed? And is there much of an impact with the U.S. pulling out and affecting the Kurds in their fight against Turkey? Well, it, what it looks like is that the, the main phase of the of the bloodletting and fighting in Syria uh, is is more or less coming to an end. I mean, we, we have to admit that Bashar al-Assad uh, has basically won this uh, this this war. Uh, the uh, issue of the U.S. troop withdrawal, I think, is a um, Look, it's only several thousand troops. It is a marginal move, but it can have an outsized impact on how the um, – I don't want to say the peace in Syria, but let's say the pre-peace uh, in Syria plays out. The removal of those U.S. troops who have been fighting alongside Kurdish rebels within Syria against ISIS uh, opens the way for two things to happen. One is for Syrian forces with heavy Iranian and Russian backing, of course, to retake large swaths of eastern Syria, um, which are currently controlled by those Kurdish forces with U.S. help. The U.S. presence there is, for lack of a better word, sort of a tripwire. No one really wants to get into it with the U.S. But if the U.S. troops aren't there, they'll be much more emboldened to attack the Kurds in the east to retake that territory for the Syrian government. And of course, in northern Syria, uh, there the issue is whether the Turkish government and Turkish troops are going to be emboldened to swoop in and, and kind of snuff out these Kurdish groups whom they consider to be terrorists aligned with uh, the Kurdish nationalists and rebels who are considered inside of Turkey to be terrorists by all NATO countries um, as well. The Turks don't want to see a, a, a Kurdish enclave 
formally established in northern Syria. And if the U.S. troops aren't there with the Kurds, Turkey is going to be emboldened to rush in and make sure that doesn't happen. Now, the question of whether the U.S. is actually going to pull those troops out is suddenly more interesting than it was several days ago. When Trump originally announced what he was going to do, he said they'll all be gone in 30 days. Over the weekend, National Security Advisor John Bolton made a very interesting comment. He was asked, will the U.S. withdraw those troops absent a Turkish promise not to swoop into northern Syria and kill all of the Kurds who the, who the U.S. has been fighting with. Bolton said, no, we will not withdraw until we have that promise. That is a very unlikely promise for the U.S. to get from Turkey. It may be that President Erdogan in Turkey holds back on, on going into northern Syria for various reasons, but he is extremely unlikely to bind himself to that outcome. So I think what we're seeing if you will, is kind of a withdrawal from the withdrawal pre uh, promise by the Trump administration. They're, fi they're figuring out that actually doing this, I mean, this decision by all intent, by all appearance was taken quite impulsively by the president. Actually doing it is much more complicated than President Trump himself thought. And now they're kind of working the angles to see um, how this can be reshaped. Uh, can it actually happen? And we'll be watching closely to see uh, Bolton is in the region this week, as is Secretary of State Pompeo, uh, trying to work out precisely these questions. My guess is that the U.S. troops don't come out nearly as quickly as Trump uh, made it seem like they would. The president is learning that nothing comes easy in the Middle East. <laughs> that's, that's right. He wouldn't be the first president to learn that. Not at all. Alex, thank you very much. Uh, that runs down some of the top risks facing the globe in 2019. We've been joined by Alex Clement, senior editor of Signal and creative director of G Zero Media with the Eurasia Group. And you can subscribe to Signal at gzeromedia.com. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app.